Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. If I'm him, I'm taking a look at Hermione, Ron, and Cho. I'm grabbing Cho and coming to the surface. <laughs> right, right in Cedric's face. You're just trying to score points with Cho. Be the, the, the savior, right? Help the damsel in distress. Oh yeah, she would have fallen for him on the spot. She would have snapped on Cedric. Why weren't you there to, to rescue me first? All I know is that I was in Harry's arms when I emerged from the water. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a fan fiction uh, story that Dan's going to write. <laughs> Who stinks now? Cedric stinks. <laughs> What's up, Bobaton and Durmstrang? This is Steven bringing you another episode of Phantology. We're doing Harry Potter 4, The Goblet of Fire. And like always, we've got Dan and Nathan on to break down the ins and outs of Harry Potter and remind you guys what you may have forgotten from your childhood read-throughs. So what's up, guys? How'd you like Harry Potter four? Yeah, one of my one of my top three top three books for sure. Yo yo, top three in in complete existence, all books out there. Of Harry? No, no, just Harry Potter, just Harry Potter. Okay. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. If I slur my speech a little bit, then it's because I just ate a ton tongue toffee that I found on the ground. I don't know who left it there, but my tongue is still shrinking back down a little bit. Yeah, no Harry Potter episode would be complete without Dan bringing a, a, a Harry Potter dad joke in. So hopefully you enjoyed that one. So Harry Potter 4, in my remembrance, this is like, this book was released right as kind of the real Harry Potter craze started. I remember being excited for this one to come out. I remember that it is 735 pages just offhand because at the time I was younger and that was a crazy amount of pages to read. So I think a lot of people think back on this one with some real fond memories because of those circumstances, because of, you know, all the craze that surrounded Harry Potter. So we're going to maybe try to separate the book from that and just talk about the book in its existence on its own as a piece of literature. So before we start talking plot stuff, like, what'd you guys think of this book on your most recent read? Because you guys both just read it again, right? Yeah, um, after my most recent reread, going off of what you just said, Stephen, I wonder if J.K. Rowling felt a little bit rushed in any way to meet a deadline for this release because it was so hyped, so anticipated. I think this was like the first midnight release type of atmosphere at the bookstores for a Harry Potter book because I felt like it could have been whittled down a little bit. I don't know if we needed all of the 735 pages. I don't know if it's in my top three. It's probably somewhere... Uh, comfortably in the middle of my personal rings of Harry Potter books. It's obviously very enjoyable, but I do have a few things I didn't enjoy about it. Mainly like I felt some parts could have been shortened, but we'll talk about that as we always do. So it did come out pretty quickly after Askman, right? She she didn't take too long to pump out all these pages. Yeah, no, it came out. I, I don't think it even took a full year for Harry Potter 4 to come out. That seems like something we could look up and verify. Yeah, I'm taking a look right now on uh, on Wikipedia. So Harry Potter 4 came out in 2000, July of 2000, and Azkaban came out in July of 2000. Literally, literally one year exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, one year exactly. And she actually made a slight mistake in the in the initial books as well when she had, I think she had uh, James come out of the wand first. 
when that was incorrect based off the order that they died in from Azkaban, corrected in later editions. But I think that kind of just like goes to show you the stress that she may have been under to get it out quickly. Yeah, I saw that detail in my podcast prep. I think I think a lot of people were hyped about this book and kind of liked it a little bit more. It's just because you have a whole different atmosphere of more people coming into the wizarding world, right? Before you just had Hogwarts, and now you have these two other schools coming in. And I think that drove up a lot of hype. Yeah, it definitely kind of changed the dynamic of the series. So we went from three books of Harry and co at Hogwarts, having a good time, easily taking down Voldemort and servants, etc. Although book three didn't really end on a super positive note. But then in book four, I mean, Voldemort comes back and you have this huge expansion of the wizarding world. Like Nathan said, there are different countries even involved. It's not just Hogwarts. And after that, you know, books five, six, seven really kind of built on that. And that drove the the plot forward. So there, there, there are these really kind of two distinct halves to the Harry Potter series. And I'd say the first half is books one, two, three, and the first half of, of uh, number four. And then as soon as Voldemort comes back, you know, th- that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, the stakes are definitely raised in this book from the very beginning. I mean, the opening scene of this book is the first one that doesn't start off with Harry at Privet Drive. It has this ominous scene with, Voldemort in this abandoned house murdering a muggle caretaker so you know right away that it's not going to be the a a children's feel the entire way through yeah so let's just start kind of talking through the plot here so like Dan said the action begins I think the first chapter is this vision right that he has of Frank Bryce the caretaker being killed by Voldemort hiding out at the Riddle house Harry wakes up and his scar hurts and he tells Sirius about it but no one else And that's kind of the ominous beginning. And then we kind of go to some fun because we have our regularly scheduled Dursley fiasco. And this time the (laughs) Weasleys are showing up and blasting holes through fireplaces. And then they're off to the Quidditch World Cup. So they don't stay there at Privet Drive very long in this book. But the Quidditch World Cup setting, this whole thing is, is really fun. Yeah, why didn't the Weasleys think to check in with Harry or anything to see what the proper way to pick him up was? Like, shouldn't shouldn't Ron have known by this point that the Dursleys were extremely sensitive about any magic types of things, and they pop up in the fireplace? Or it seemed like they could have checked up on that. I don't yeah, know. Didn't Art? Well, Art Arthur Weasley studied Muggles, right? Shouldn't he have known? Maybe just show up in the front door, give him a knock. <laughs> Well, no, they got to go by flu powder. Flu powder is the, the easiest way of transportation with underage wizards, uh, such as our stars here. But yeah, maybe I would say in general, wizards are just super arrogant. And when it comes to muggles, they just kind of see them as like, okay, we'll do whatever we want. And, you know, the muggles can figure it out on their end. I mean, other than like breaches of the statute of security. Yeah. And it's clear that wizards have a different view of stuff getting broken and repairing things than is the way that muggles would perceive it because like none of them, I don't know, even think twice about the chimney all getting busted through because they can just fix it right away. But that would probably cause the Dursleys quite a bit of shock. Yeah. They probably dropped a lot of pounds on the remodel after that whole incident. Yeah. uh, Speaking of pounds, one of my favorite parts of this book is the update that we get on Dudley's weight. And he's just totally transformed into like, who's the character on uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Augustus Gloop. 
Like he just uh-huh. eats everything in sight and it's highlighted by the ton tongue toffee that Fred and George leave behind, which is a pretty yeah. shady move actually because if Arthur hadn't stayed behind and seen it, then he, his tongue just would have been huge forever. <laughs> that could have caused some problems with the ministry for Arthur. Yeah, like I said, wizards, they don't seem to care too much about the fate of muggles, even the most altruistic, such as these, you know, Gryffindor, this Gryffindor family, right? I mean, imagine the Malfoys showing up. I doubt Lucius would have even stopped to reduce the tongue size. Yeah, yeah, but I thought that these opening chapters with the Dursleys, I didn't I didn't think that they revealed too much. You had Harry's scar hurting, which was important, but I thought they could have just fast-forwarded to Harry waking up at, at the Quidditch World Cup like and filled us in about those details rather than spent any time with the Dursleys, but I think it's just a requirement at this point to have your token two chapters with them. So we'll update. Well, part of part of Harry Potter is the fun of the humor and everything, and and the Dursleys provide a comic relief that's pretty sorely needed in this book, which gets pretty heavy towards the end. That's yeah. true. So we leave them pretty quickly, and then we go off to the burrow for a short amount of time. Hermione is there as well, and then we're off to the Quidditch World Cup, where we have good tickets to watch the big World Cup. Do they say how often the World Cup happens? I assume it's maybe just like every four years, like the soccer one. Oh, yeah, uh, I don't I, know about that. I can, I'll look that up really quick. Yeah, fact check that. I don't think it's every four years. Just an annual thing? Yeah. Then? I'm sure that I'm sure the Harry Potter wiki uh, t- will tell us. It's every two years every for two the years. Quidditch World Cup. Okay. And this is exciting because Ireland is in the Cup. It, it would be like the same level of excitement if uh, England ever made the World Cup. I know, uh, I know the British folks over there in the homeland are pretty... Uh, disparaging on uh on, on their team's chances of ever doing anything in the soccer world cup but it would be similar excitement because ireland one of the home land teams is in the cup but we've got a formidable opponent in victor crumb and the rest of his bulgarian teammates who stink apparently <laughs> yeah like they've just made it they've made it through entirely on the back of crumb <laughs> crumb the greatest seeker of all time yeah, and the atmosphere for the Quidditch World Cup must have been insane because a little detail that I don't remember from my first read, but on the reread, that there were people waiting for two weeks beforehand because they had to arrive there. They had to come like stagnate their arrivals or stagger their arrivals, I mean. So I don't know if there's a tailgating atmosphere or what, but it's obviously that this was the event of the year or of the of every two years. So remind me, the Weasleys got tickets just through the connection. They they won a, a drawing or something from the ministry. No, they didn't win a they didn't win a drawing. It was a gift from Ludo Bagman because he oh, owed a yeah, favor to Arthur. Did. Yeah, that's right. Which is insane oh. because Ludo Bagman, who we find out later, is just drowning in gambling debt. Why doesn't he sell these tickets? And it's not just like any ticket to the Quidditch World Cup. It's the top box. It's like right next to Lucius Malfoy, who you know can afford anything. So that gives you an idea of how much they might be worth. So I don't know what he's doing, given it. And the explanation of the favor that Arthur did for Ludo, it doesn't seem like that much. Like he helped a friend of his or like a somewhat distant family member. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, any and anyone, anyone who's drowning in gambling debt, we can probably assume they're not going to make great financial decisions going forward. But yeah, that, that's a good point that that maybe would have been a little more obvious. Anyway, the uh, the event itself, the cup, was fun. I thought one of, one of my favorite parts from the book was the the bet that Fred and George had, you know, that uh, that Ireland would win, but Crumb would catch the snitch, and of course that works out. 
and they get paid in leprechaun gold. We don't really find that out till a little bit later. But I think the actual World Cup itself, I think the movie did a lot for me in being able to imagine that setting. I don't know if I imagined it quite as awesome in the book only. Yeah, the movie had that whole atmosphere. There's a bunch of just tents everywhere, a lot of people, a lot of noise. Well, we got that from the book as well. I was kind of more talking about like the stadium itself, how it oh. went up vertically. It seems like the best way to watch Quidditch because Quidditch is got to be a hard sport for a spectator, right? I mean, I guess you get the uh, the the ocu oculus. Yeah, yeah. I guess you you fork over some gall- galleons for those, and that's definitely worth it. But otherwise, like if you have seats towards the bottom of the stadium, that's rough. Yeah. Omnioculars is the name of the wizard binoculars. I just want to point this out. The Bulgarian team just reminds me a lot of the 2017 or the 2018 Cleveland Cavaliers. How Victor Chrome is LeBron James and just carries that team to the finals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good comparison. Or, or in his previous stint with the Cavaliers when he made the conference finals and the finals a few times. Yeah. None of the teammates were that notable. But for me, J.K. Rowling is not at her best when she's describing sports. And I have, I have big issues with Victor Crumb catching the snitch. And I know that people say, well, he just wanted to end things on his terms. But from the feel of the book, like things are going by so fast and it doesn't tell you how long the Quidditch match lasted. But we know that in the past, uh, historically, they've gone on days, even months, I think. So this is the culmination of all of your practice as an athlete. Like these are the brightest of all of the lights. And to me, like reading the book, it seemed like it was going on half an hour or something. And then all the Bulgarian team just tapped out. And I think Quidditch is a really unpredictable sport, especially in this match, the state of like the havoc that all that the mascots were wreaking. And it seemed like the refs didn't care at all. It seemed like the Bulgarians could have tried some dirty tactics. Like you never know what could happen. They could have tried to injure some of the Irish players. But I was a little turned off by Victor Crumb catching the snitch when he knew that they wouldn't win. Like I would have I would have waited it out a little bit longer. So you're expecting more Hogwarts, Slytherin-esque tactics in these situations? Yeah, exactly. From the previous book, which we discussed, when Slytherin sent in the all-beater squad. One other thing, it seems like if you are down at this point and cannot win by catching the snitch, you're down by more than 150, shouldn't you be able to basically pull the goalie, same as you would do in hockey, and then like make another chaser? Yeah. So Crumb becomes a chaser for a while to try to catch up? Yeah, but then what happens if the Irish seeker catches a snitch while Chrome is Well, yeah, that's chaser. the risk you take. That's, that's the only choice you have. Yeah. But I think what I'm learning from these books by now, like in the fourth book, is whenever a lot of wizards get together in the same place, it's just inevitably going to turn into chaos. There was no management. You would think that they would at least have the refereeing situation all squared away for the World Cup. But it's like the most poorly managed Quidditch match that's been described. Actually, I don't know about that because there were times when brooms were getting hexed and dementors were getting allowed onto the field. So Yeah, or players pulling on brooms. Yeah, the referee, I think, was distracted by the Vila for a while at one point. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. It seems like maybe like, like a Barty Crouch type guy, a, a real boring wizard, should have been able to impose some order on these types of settings, but it really does a poor job. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it does its its job of exposing us to the international wizarding community, which we were totally blind to before this book. Like I just thought all the wizards were in England and it was really concentrated and Diagon Alley was the biggest group of wizards that you could find or something. But that's clearly not the case as we see here. Yeah, that only wizards existed in England. If you lived elsewhere, you couldn't be a wizard. Uh, and, and that was sorely needed going into this book because obviously we're bringing in the foreigners later on for the rest of the plot. So it's it's a good setup. And it, I thought it was fun bringing in Crumb here and then Crumb appearing as, as a hero, as, as a you know, Triwizard champion. So that was a nice tie together. It was nice to see Ron completely fanboying when Crumb showed up. Yeah, I was I was hyped when Crumb showed up at Hogwarts too. I was right there with Ron. Yeah, so so after the cup, they have more mayhem, but this time it's real nefarious because some Voldemort followers, some Death Eaters, if you will, or Death Eater uh, legacies get together and cast the Dark Mark. And well, they don't cast the Dark Mark. They they inflict some mayhem until the Dark Mark appeared and then they run away because really they're afraid of Voldemort coming back but we know that by the end of the book we know that it was actually Barty Crouch Jr. that cast that at this Whoa, point it's a mystery are you talking about that spoiler alert yeah I think we I think we all know Harry Potter 4 so uh so we're talking through the whole thing I already I already mentioned Voldemort was coming back as well oh yeah you did <laughs> but this part of the book um it was really chilling because they were just like torturing these muggles like going along with what I was saying before, like it's obviously transitioning from being a child's book to more of an adult book. Like at that point, it's pretty apparent. Yeah. Right. And by the end, I mean, we actually have someone die, a character that we care about to some extent. So by the time the fourth book is over, we're definitely kind of moving out of YA fiction for Harry Potter. Yeah. Did you guys like the tents at the Quidditch World Cup? Well, I liked the Weasley's tent. Well, all the tents were the same. I think they all kind of had like the same technology that's present in Hermione's bag later in the series. You can just stuff as much stuff as possible in the tent. Yeah, the tents are awesome. That's a fun little wizarding quirk. Yeah, I was kind of wishing that they could have camped out for more in the tent. Had some real Weasley and, and Harry bonding time. It's like campfire chats. It's like yeah. roasting s'mores. Yeah, and Hermione could have brought her parents and they could have taught like some muggle camping methods or something. Yeah, I don't think wizards have ever actually roughed it, right? I mean, because no matter what situation you're in, you can always conjure your comfort, which kind of brings up to question, like, how does the wizard economy work? But that's a whole other discussion we don't need to get into. doesn't really make a ton of sense. Anyway, Winky, who is Barty Crouch Sr.'s house elf, gets blamed for casting the Dark Mark. This doesn't make any sense. How could nope. the house yeah. elf have cast the Dark Mark? So right away, we know something's up. It just seems very strange that people went along with this. Like, why was there not a more organized investigation into this? It goes into what I was saying before about large wizarding gatherings inevitably turning into chaos. Like the security, it seemed like the security plan for this was just, if anything happens, let's all scatter and run into the woods and everyone freak out. Like there was no protocol whatsoever to follow. Yeah. Are there in our world, in our muggle world, really like in an event like this, like imagine Woodstock or something like if there was some kind of terrorist attack, would there be a protocol? I think people would just, no, you, it, just right? you just scatter. Yeah, but there would at least be a police. And I guess there are orders here, but it doesn't make any mention of them, really. Yeah, I mean, they show up after the fact. Yeah, it really kind of brings into question the whole uh, ability of wizards to organize things. How much do they actually care? 
how well things are organized. And that brings us into the main part of the plot, which is the Triwizard Tournament, which has some organization, but is built around bending the rules. So even the, and this point system itself is completely arbitrary. I think we're kind of used to this through like a house cup situation. So yeah, I, I'm kind of with you, Dan. It seems like pretty much everything in the Wizarding World is arbitrary. There are no real uh, red personalities, if you will. Like everyone's all kind of creative and free spirited and they want to have fun. But when it comes to actually like laying out the groundwork of how things are going to work, they just kind of figure it'll, it'll just work out. Yeah, but I was really um, excited about, I, I like the the shakeup of having the Triwizard Tournament rather than the regular, regular Quidditch season. Um, some different type of sporting entertainment. Yeah, we were ready for something else for sure. I think it would have been fun if this was mentioned a little bit more in previous books. We kind of knew the Triwizard Tournament was happening. Like if there was rumors of a tournament coming back at your school, don't you think you would like this would be on the calendar for years prior? Like the students would have been talking about it. They would have been going to summer vacation hyped, but it comes up as a complete surprise. It seems amazing. Although I guess it was like some muggle, some, some ministry officials knew about it, but they were sworn to secrecy. I mean, it's just like a vacation or like, I don't know, thinking about it like that way, like parents planning a vacation and telling their kids like a day before. Yeah, but that'd be like parents telling your kids. We're talking about organizing an event, coordinating across different international communities. A thousand galleons are on the line. We're bringing in dragons. We're casting real complex spells. This must have taken years of planning, we assume. Yeah. You'd, have, you'd have thought that at least Rita Skeeter could have caught wind of it. Yeah, Rita Skeeter should have been tweeting about this for years prior. Woe should have dropped this information on us. But the fact that the secret was kept made the reveal even more exciting, I'm sure, for the students. Yeah, definitely. And and like you say, we are hyped when this happens. We're hyped when we get some visitors to the school in Bobaton and Durmstrang. But we also do get an idea that there are some rules. And the first rule we are told about is that only those that are over 17 mm. can enter the tournament. And this will this rule will be immediately broken by Harry, or yeah. so we think. Once again, you kind of get back to this thing where Harry does something, or he gets thrown into something, and then is immediately resented by the rest of the school. Like, no one ever has Harry's back. It's embarrassing. I just think it's strange how they make Harry compete. It's like, why are you making a 14-year-old compete in a tournament that could kill him? It's a little bit of plot armor. They just say, oh, it's a contract, and so he has to. But yeah, it doesn't quite make sense. Seems like they could have just pulled him out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm willing to accept that. What I didn't understand more was, why didn't Harry complain or protest at all, really? Like, I don't know, why didn't you say, I've actually, guys, I've had my taste of near-death experience the past little bit, and I kind of wanted to just like a chill year here at Hogwarts, but obviously the series being, he being the title character, nothing can happen without him being involved. But I thought he would have spoken up more adamantly because if, if I was him, I would be frightened with the reputation that this tournament has that my magic skills aren't up to par. I don't have the technical ability necessary to get past some of this stuff. Yeah. And I'm 14. My best spell is Expelliarmus. Obviously I'm not going to do well, right? Why would you think you do well? I guess He's survived some pretty incredible things over the past three years. Maybe he just really thrives. He he, he really uh, gets a rush. In the moment. He, he, he requires this attention. At his heart, he's more of a thrill seeker and and, and really loves all of the, the attention and celebrity status. Yeah. 
I don't know. I think it's kind of funny though that how everyone automatically thinks that Harry put his name in the in the cup, even though it was impossible for him to do so. Yeah, I guess what other explanation would they have had? But it's a, it's really kind of low that Ron, his best friend, is unable to come to his aid in this time where he obviously needs help. Yeah, point point one that Ron is actually the worst character in the book. Yeah, we can see this trend of Nathan hating on Ron. It's not the best Ron book. But maybe, actually, maybe Harry just participated because he knew he was going to be exempt from the exams. Like, that's a huge bonus. Even though it seems unnecessary, considering they have several months in between to prepare. And, yeah. and Harry procrastinates to the last moment every time. Yeah, how much time does Harry actually spend preparing for any of these trials, tasks? Mm-hmm. He, uh, with, without help, he would have been completely lost. Without help from Mad-Eye Moody, which is probably the coolest character in the whole series. He would have died by the dragon immediately. Oh, wow. Should we talk about that take later? That's an interesting <laughs> take. I, I can see a pushback coming on that take, but we'll, what? we'll get to that in the end of the podcast when we do our top three and bottom three. So it sounds like Mad-Eye might have a spot on the top three of Nathan's. So a couple other things happen as we kind of get ready for the tournament to start. Oh, wait, wait. I want to tell you guys about um, something that I researched because it had always bothered me, the arrival of Bobaton and Durmstrang. Because Durmstrang just arrives in this boat that comes up out of the lake. But I researched and J.K. Rowling said that the way that the ship could arrive is because it had magical properties and it could transport itself to different waterways. Oh, okay. Maybe you guys so you, already knew that. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that. Kind of like the, uh, the, the ship from Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Davy Jones' ship. What's the yeah. name of that ship? The Jolly Roger. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, that, that's fun. So, so they do that. They come in on the ship. The Bobaton girls arrive on... The carriage drawn by the huge horses, and we get Madame Maxime and Karkaroff are some supporting characters that provide a little bit to the book. Not a huge fan of these headmaster and mistresses. Especially because of what you said before about the arbitrary scoring, and Madame Maxime and Karkaroff and Dumbledore are responsible for the scoring. And there's that one part, I can't remember, is it the first task or the second task when Karkaroff? gives Harry a four and everyone else gives him a nine. I think it's the dragon task, but the scoring seems like it's totally just made up on the spot. There's no yeah. rubric at all. <laughs> well, you have the whole second task where Harry automatically just gets a bunch of points for saving two people, even though he got last. Yeah. That time Dumbledore is able to kind of come to his aid and I guess talk him into it or threaten Carker off or something. Who knows what happened there? So we get a, a little bit of class going on this year, although there's not a whole lot that's actually on screen. One of the classes is our latest flavor of Defense Against the, the Dark Arts, and it starts off with a bang as Moody literally shows them the most complex dark spells out there in the Unforgivable Curses. This was a nice introduction. I mean, we know that there are curses that can kill, but we didn't know about Crucio or Imperio yet, and these are going to be important curses going forward. And it's it's nice to see Moody do this. And once again, kind of like Dan says, it kind of like adds to this darker feel to the story, knowing that there's these curses that can do some real harm to people. Yeah, and the book lets you know that Dumbledore knows for sure that the war is coming, or at least he suspects that it's coming and Voldemort is, ri- is rising to power because he lets the students be exposed to these things. That, in a, I think, it, I mean, it's, Important for the other books as well, but very important for this book and what happens at the end of the book. 
Definitely. And then the other small thing that happens is SPEW, S-P-E-W, Society for the Protection of Elfish Wel- Welfare. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hermione starts that up. Hermione is turning into a real cause person. And this is the cause that she has chosen to adopt based, based off her experience with Dobby and Winky's dismissal. And this is just kind of some more comic relief, to be honest. Like, I yeah, I get that it kind of hints at a little more, some more serious themes, like, you know, equality amongst these different half human races, etc. But I couldn't really take it too seriously. For listeners that don't remember in a prior podcast, Stephen totally dismissed the cause of the elves. The problem is it seems like they're happy as they are. Like, they're, they're yeah. literally, like, this is what they're on the earth to do. And they enjoy doing it and get fulfillment out of it. So it's not like there is this inequality amongst different human races. Like this is seriously what the elves like doing. So why is Hermione so into it? Like, why can she not realize that this is a a weird thing to be into? What does Dobby do now that he's free? Do you just roam around helping other people or? He's helping out in the kitchens a bit. He tries to cheer up Winky. He wears a bunch of clothes, like all on top of himself. Very proudly. He's really into that. Very yeah. proudly. I get that, but it's like, why? The whole movement doesn't gain a lot of traction in this book. I think the main thing that you learn is that Hermione is just straight up not a good activist. She has good intentions and stuff, but she doesn't try to reason with people. She just kind of strong hands Harry and Ron into joining and then expects everyone to feel the same because they're friends with her. And then, like, her biggest mistake is she doesn't even talk to the elves. She just assumes... They need her help and are kind of incapable of doing anything on their own. I don't know. It seems a little reminiscent of some other activism that we see without going into much more details. It's funny that she actually also makes them pay entrance fees. Harry and Ron have to pay for the badges. It's like she's forcing them to be patrons. Very different than being patrons of a cool podcasts such as Phantology, where where there, yeah, where there's a lot of stuff coming back at you. In Hermione's case, she's just like forcing her friends to pay her. Yeah. And there's a funny scene in the book when Harry thinks that, I forget who it is that's walking in the common room, but he thinks that they might be wearing a spew badge, but it turns out to be the Potter Stinks badge flashing, Uh which I think is one of the funniest parts of the whole book is the Potter Stinks. I, maybe I t- dismissed the humor too early by saying that the Dursleys required humor because there's humor throughout and Fred and George really kind of bring that throughout this book. Yeah, it's the whole betting, betting on all the on all the different events. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, and then you have Hagrid with his latest newfangled idea about he wants to raise Blast and its Scroots, which he knows absolutely nothing about. He doesn't even know what they eat. And he just somehow has acquired a bunch of them for the students to experiment with. Yeah, what happened to Hagrid? He had so much potential going in and he couldn't have got his mojo back over the summer. He just starts off with Boston's skirts. Yeah, stick to what you know, man. Well, I think maybe they forced him to do that because they were going to be a part of the maze for the third task. And so he was uh, raising them. Maybe, but do we assume, once again, do we assume that there's been any planning put into place for the third task? Seems like maybe they're just like looking around Oh, what's the third task going to be? Okay, we've got uh, these big creatures from Hagrid. Yeah, sure, throw them in. No, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But I think now that I'm thinking about it, I think the Hogwarts students would have an advantage in combating the blast-ended scroots because of their experience in care of magical creatures. 
that the Durmstrang and Bobaton students would be at a disadvantage. By the way, what are how are the Bobaton and Durmstrang students maintaining their education during this time? <laughs> they don't have any classes. Really good question. Do they never join any of the students for like a, a class here or there? I can't remember it in the book. In the movie, they do. But I may be wrong about the book. I don't think they do. They don't in the book. And I thought that that was a scene that was lacking. Like maybe they could have brought back the dueling club and had dueling between the different schools. Like if they're going to put as much time into the uh, collaboration of international wizarding communities, you think that they would give them a chance to cross paths more. And they do see each other in the hallways, though, like when Ron asks Fleur to the to the Yule Ball and obviously Victor Crumb's in the library and stuff. Yeah. So what are they doing in Hogwarts proper? Well, I think they're probably all older students, so they're on. They have like the same coursework, so maybe they're just doing it in their carriage and their ship, and then they just emerge from those after their classes are done for the day. So they've done all the required coursework, and they're just doing like their online prep for their final exams. Yeah, something yeah. like that. That stinks that they have to stay inside their ship or carriage. Like they've got this huge, awesome Hogwarts castle they could be staying in. Although I guess based off the tent experience, we can assume that the ship and carriage are probably pretty decked out as well. Oh, it's probably a cruise ship. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, we know, we know uh, Dan likes the cruise ship. So you can, you can tell us about all the amenities available there. Yeah. There's some interesting like co-ed cohabitation things going on because they have their male and female student, they're like their elite male and female students all together. Never mind. No, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Yeah, we might cut that before people get the wrong idea of your <laughs> of what you're trying to say there. But after this is all kind of so actions getting started and Harry, everyone still hates Harry, of course. He doesn't make it any easier on himself by accepting this interview with Rita Skeeter, who is a fun new character, but Rita interviews Harry and ends up publishing this article that's completely off base. She's taking all of these notes while Harry's trying to like stammer through a, co- a coherent sentence. Uh, Harry, no experience dealing with fame, apparently like he's learned nothing in his past few years. And then they kind of get ready for the task. No one is on Harry's side still, but he gets some help from Hagrid. I guess Hagrid's always going to be on Harry's side. He's always got his back. So Hagrid takes him out to see the dragons. I think this is Hagrid's finest moment up to this point. Yeah. Do you think Hagrid just did this on his own? or like, Did Dumbledore tell him to do this or he, he just decided to take it upon himself to do it? It comes from... Oh, yeah, Moody, or Barty Crouch Jr. suggests to Hagrid to do it, yeah. Yeah, and he also, Barty Crouch Jr. also teaches Harry Accio, which I think would be the coolest spell to use. Yeah, one of the more useful spells that Harry is going to learn, Accio. And so so, uh, Mad-Eye Moody gives him some tips. I guess we'll call him Moody for now, or or you guys can choose what you want to call him. Moody Jr. Anyway... We know that there are these dragons. One of them is fearsome and gigantic, and no one's going to survive that one. So, of course, that's the one that Harry is going to face off against the Hungarian Horntail. Uh, the other ones are the Chinese Fireball, the Commonwealth Green, and which is the last dragon? The Hungarian Horntail? No, I said I said Hungarian Horntail, Commonwealth Green, and Chinese Fireball. Ooh. Is there a Norwegian Ridgeback? Or- Norwegian? No. Hunchback something. No. What is it? I'm asking you. I'm asking you what it is. Oh, I thought it was a trivia question just to test us. It is. What's the answer? I just gave my guess. I don't know what it is. 
No, Norbert is the Norwegian Ridgeback. The Swedish short snout. The Swedish short snout. Thank you. Oh. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Nathan. That's yeah. the one that Cedric faces, I believe. Yeah, not fair that Harry gets the hardest dragon, of course. And did you guys, I felt a little bit for Hagrid because it felt like in that scene where he was showing Madame Maxine that he was getting used a little bit. Like he was the one that was way more into the potential relationship. Felt bad for the guy. Yeah, Hagrid probably doesn't have very many matches popping up on Wizard Tinder. So this is a big opportunity for him. And he's unable to really make much progress, unfortunately. Yeah, I love later in the book when you find out that they're a giant. Well, Hagrid's trying to talk to her he's trying to ease into the topic of her being a half giant and like clearly she's is she is but she's in denial but then i love when like ron for instance hears that ron is a half giant and he's all blown away i'm like dude what did you think hagrid was i thought this was yeah. kind of soon at this point. <laughs> just a really tall person also what's up with madame maxine being in denial she is in her you know mature wizarding years and is the headmistress of this academy, there's no way she's come up through the ranks over the years without having to face some professional scrutiny. How can she not be open about her obvious half-giantess nature? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, who knows? The wizarding world just has some biases that um, are really hard to overcome. So Harry, let's talk first task. So he's got to get the golden egg out of the vicious dragon He does so with a combination of summoning his broomstick and flying around really nicely, combining a couple things that he does know how to do. The other champions use some more advanced magic, but um, Harry does really well for himself by playing to his strengths, even though Moody is the one who gives him the idea. Seems like maybe he could have come up with that idea, like we're flying, I've got my broomstick. But He probably didn't know about the range. He didn't know the range that Accio could cover to summon it from that far. Yeah, it's already out in the castle. That's got to be in your spell book, though. I mean, anyone who's into D&D in the slightest knows that every spell has ranges built into it. So this has got to be something like way basic in your wizarding, wizarding spell book. How, what's my range on the spells? Yeah, that's a good point. But I was really impressed with Harry that he informed Cedric about that. He tipped off Cedric about the dragon for real, because this is at the point when the whole school hates him and people are wearing the Potter Stinks badges and whatnot. I mean, cheating seems to not be only be normal, though, but it's kind of an expected part of the tournament, which isn't surprising because corruption seems to work its way into a lot of aspects of the books. And we like Cedric. Cedric is one of the few out of Hogwarts who's at least treating Harry de- decently. He doesn't wear the badge. Yeah, he doesn't wear the badge. One of the few. So Harry succeeds. Like Dan said, he gets a lower mark from Carcraft, but it's really about survival for Harry. I don't know if he's ever really trying to win the tournament until the end i don't think he has much of a of an idea that he could win but he's just trying to make it through the year which has gone off to a terrible start for him thus far and the next thing that happens is he opens his egg and he's excited to get the next clue the gryffindors are on his side again ron has decided that he's going to be friends with harry again now that harry's very successful and he pulls open the egg in the common room at the big party and that doesn't go well because it wails loudly and, and gives Harry no clues. And right away, he's kind of back to square one, having no idea what to do. Yeah, the whole the whole Gryffindor common rooms was pretty funny just because Ron finally decides that to put his jealousies behind him and help out Harry, which doesn't make any sense. 
Well, it's because he said that he realized that it actually was really dangerous and Harry probably wasn't putting himself in that situation on his own just for the glory. Well, no kidding, Ron. I mean, wouldn't the reputation of the tournament and the fact that you have to be 17 to enter have clued you in? Yeah. Ron requires like visual proof of everything before he's on board with it. I guess. Yeah, but something I didn't realize about Ron that maybe caused him to be a little bit on edge. So in the book, he doesn't get his nasty dress robes until I think a little bit before the Yule Ball leading into that. Did I say in the book? I meant in the movie. In the book, Uh Ron gets his dress robes before he even goes to school. And so he's got that weighing him down. He's just feeling bad about being poor. And Draco, of course, takes some shots at him when he arrives. Well, he doesn't know what the dress robes are for yet. He doesn't know how embarrassing they're going to be. It's got to be a shot to his confidence. Yeah, he's probably got some anxiety weighing on him whenever he thinks back to the dress robes. <laughs> yeah, and he had like his cool brothers were visiting and going to the Quidditch World Cup, and he probably doesn't feel as cool as them. I don't know. He, he I mean, he's best friends with the most famous wizard in the world. Well, that's the problem, right? His best friend is getting all the attention, and he's just the sidekick. And when you're yeah, 14, that's tough. Still, Ron should have stepped it up. Yeah. Should we talk about the Yule Ball now? Yeah, so speaking of dress robes, the Yule Ball is now a thing. McGonagall tells them about it. It's going to be on Christmas. Harry thinks he's going to opt out, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but he can't. He, he needs to come with a date. So Harry's 14. This is his real first dip into romance. He's starting to crush on Cho Chang of Infamy in Quidditch last year, but Cho Chang a very poor strategy in the Ravenclaw match. But Harry likes her anyway because she's hot, I guess, and maybe smart because she's in Ravenclaw. But he tries to ask her and is thwarted by Cedric. So he's got this complicated relationship with Cedric where he likes him, but at the same time, it's like, man, he stole his girl. Man, that was so crushing when Harry got rejected by Cho. But I was feeling good about it at the time because you got to plant those seeds, right? And Cedric was going to be graduating, and Cho is only one year ahead of Harry. So I was figuring that he could take advantage of the situation when when Cedric left, but it's always good to let Cho, I mean, Cho wasn't mean about it or anything, but I felt yeah. personally crushed at that part. <laughs> personally crushed. We, we don't know that she's actually the worst until a couple more books. It works out for Harry in the next book, at least. Oh his yeah. First role, yeah. His first real romance. We'll, we'll touch on that in the next episode. Anyway, not going to work out for Harry this time, but he does secure a date with the, Patil twins, him and Ron, get dates with Parvati and Padma, right? Is yeah. The, uh, yeah. Is the is the Ravenclaw sister's name? Yeah. They're total jerks to their dates, though, because I they're know. not the people that they wanted to be. So way bad uh, move on, on their part. But, but uh, then the other exciting thing is, is Hermione's big entrance with her date with Victor Crumb, the big man big, on campus. Big Victor surprise. Crumb. Second biggest twist in the entire book besides the Moody being Barty Crouch. Really? That's the biggest twist? Yeah, was Hermione being a highly sought-after commodity? Nobody liked her up to until this point. What about the cup being a portkey? That's not a twist. Or Voldemort coming back. No, we saw that. We saw the signs. Mm. We were totally thrown off the scent of this because Hermione spoke against Crumb in the library. And she spoke, yeah, but- she spoke poorly about all the girls that all the people that were fangirling. Yeah, you, but you had no idea that the cup was a porky. You could have seen that a little bit because of the porky introduction 
of the boot at the very beginning of the book. But yeah, I see what you're saying, Dan, because Hermione's actively speaking against. It seems like everything in the plot is moving against that happening. And then it does happen and it's a nice twist. And then you realize like Hermione was really just kind of maybe embarrassed or, or, uh, you know, didn't want to admit to Harry and Ron that she had this big date. No, she knows how to play the game. She knows how to grab Ron's attention. Yeah. I do wish we could have seen, I wish we could have seen Emma Watson with huge buck teeth for the first three movies. (laughs) Would have been cool. Well, we forgot to talk about the most savage part of the book so far, which is Snape publicly dissing Hermione's teeth. Do you guys remember that part from reading the book? Mm, it was the worst thing. should have been fired on the spot. Well, someone had said something about Hermione's teeth and how she had shrunk them back to regular size. And then Snape, it says like she took, he took a long look at her and said, hmm, I don't notice. Says, oh yeah, it says no, no difference. No, no difference. Right, yeah. right. That is so bogus from a professor. Yeah, we, we know that uh, you're going to continue to hit on Snape because of how much of, uh, of a jerk he is to his students. And it, I mean, come on, man, turn it, turn it around a little bit. Snape continues to be a jerk. We don't expect anything else. Yeah. So the, the Yule Ball itself, there are some plot advancements that happen. The, the Hagrid, Maxime, half-giant conversation happens. And then Harry gets the hint from Cedric about the egg, about taking a bath with it. But Harry doesn't like this hint at the time because he's got to swallow his pride because Cedric just dissed him and stole his girl. But eventually he is going to get over it. And overall, like impressions of the Yule Ball before we move past it? Nathan? Uh, No, I liked the Yule Ball. I thought it was really funny. I can't remember in the book specifically, but pretty sure Neville and Jeannie go together, which I thought was really funny. And... I don't know. It just reminded me of like school dances or. I liked when Fred and George were talking about their prospective dates. And I can't remember if it was Fred or George, but one of them just calls out to Angelina Johnson, the, you know, the hot Quidditch chaser. Yeah. And he yeah. Asked her on the spot, like the day before, Hey, you want to go to the dance with me? And she kind of plays it off, but she says yes. But you know, in her mind, she's like way happy that the bad boy in school asked her. <laughs> the bad boy in school. It was such a. <laughs> by fred or george i wish i could remember who it was how how was she still sure available at that point oh yeah no kidding i mean quidditch player how how is like harry not going after her? i mean you at least know that harry has a relationship with her being on the quidditch team and all well he she's like what two years three years older than him yeah maybe it's more of like a little brother thing at that point that didn't stop uh crumb from going with hermione the age difference yeah do we have an issue with the age difference uh no, I don't. I don't have a different. Hermione matured a lot when her teeth shrunk, so so she's eligible eligible now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. But yeah, I loved the dance, but I just wish Ron wouldn't have been such a jerk and would like get over himself and how desperate he was for Hermione for a couple of seconds, so that we could enjoy the dance a little bit and get some some Harry social interaction. And oh no, Harry didn't enjoy the dance whatsoever. <laughs> I feel like if Ron dragged him down, like when you're uncomfortable at a dance, you're going to kind of follow with your boys. Like if they're being wallflowers, you're not going to be the one that ventures out unless you like go out with like Dean or like dance with Neville. Like you want them to go dance with them or what? Yeah, that would have been awesome if Harry left Ron sulking on the sidelines and went and partied up with Dean and Seamus and the rest of the Gryffindor. <laughs> That's what he should have done. Minus on Harry yeah. for not doing yeah. that. This is the only school dance that they had the entire time, their entire time at Hogwarts. 
Yeah, remind me next dance that I attend. I, I want to hear some music from the Weird Sisters. They sound like a, a pretty up-and-coming hot band in the Wizarding World. Yeah, and they're actually boys. Yeah, they probably would have given a good performance. But uh, but moving past the the whole dance thing, so now I kind of get ready for the second task. The book is just kind of like broke up into these chunks where we're getting ready for a task, and then we do the task. So this second task is all about figuring out the egg and the prefix bathroom type thing. And eventually, Harry is able to swallow his pride, go into the bathroom. He figures out to, he needs to listen to it underwater, which, yeah, that I thought that was pretty well done. That was a... Yeah, that was a nice way to reveal a clue. Like yeah. if I'm designing an escape room, that seems like a, a fun clue to build in if I had magical powers. Remind me, how did Cedric find that clue out? Moody had told him. And Moody knew that Cedric would tell Harry because he owed him a favor. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It all came from Body Crouch Jr. eventually. So Harry find he he listens to the riddle, he kind of puts it together, but he doesn't know what to do. I mean, he knows that he's got to get the thing that I'll sorely miss. He's got an hour. It's associated with the mermaids. It's in the lake, but he has no idea how he's going to approach this. He also loses the map. That's unfortunate. I thought that was kind of like a, a one-off that was just necessary to avoid a plot hole like we had in, in uh, Azkaban, where it seemed like we should have been able to see Pettigrew on the map. And, and we do see Barty Crouch on the map. So So Crouch snatches it real quick before Harry can investigate any further yeah and i thought that barty crouch slash mad eye moody was a terrific actor in this part on the reread because his character like first of all it's a little questionable how good and i'm gonna actually get into this later in my character ranking spoiler alert but he's so good at portraying mad eye moody he fools everyone around him like even people that have been friends with him for years but in this scene specifically he on the fly improvises um a reason why the map would be there. I've, I'm forgetting exactly what it was or like how the egg could have been there. And he gets Snape off the trail, like totally saves Harry's hide right there because Harry made a big mistake. But like he fooled Dumbledore and Dumbledore and Mad-Eye Moody have been friends for years. Right. Yeah, maybe Barty Crouch is a little OP in his ability to portray Moody. But I think I think we'll get Dan's take on that later on in our power rankings segment. So going into the second task. So... Harry gets told last minute, or he, he figures it out very last minute, the gillyweed thing. And Neville should have, like, that should have helped him a long time ago because Neville was, like, literally reading the book that he needed. But what happens? Dobby just gives him the gillyweed, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the, it's really a flair for the dramatic because um, Dobby knew about it from the night before, but he waits until. Like I, Harry's even late waking up for it because he stayed up the whole previous night reading. And Hermione and Ron get taken away and Harry's left all alone. This was a task in the prep where just having Google would have helped out Harry quite a bit. Just a simple Google search of how you can stay underwater. Yeah, it seems like that's something that's really lacking from the wizarding community. Some kind of magical database. That's in a lot of different fantasy books. So maybe a little disappointing that Harry Potter... Wizarding World has not developed such a thing. Yeah, like, I don't know, like a like a huge book, and you just look up a word or ask it a question, and it tells you the answer. Yeah, there's this cool there's this cool thing in the Lycanius trilogy for fans that it's it's basically like this big archive. Oh and yeah. And there's this there's this magical thing. You don't know Dan, stop. Yeah, yeah, but, for uh, sure. There's this big magical thing in the center that you ask a question to and then it will point out the relevant books. So something like that would be way cool at the Hogwarts library. 
Or kind of like Janet from The Good Place. Yeah. Yeah, Janet. Or or like, why do we not have more help from our librarian staff? There is what a librarian, there right? No, there is. Madam Prince. Oh, duh. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, Madam yeah, but Madam she Pints. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're missing that. But it works out for Harry because he gets the gillyweed. He's able to go down. And the gillyweed turned out to probably be the best strategy. Better than the bubblehead. Better than the shark transformation, which seems like a total macho man thing to do. And Harry gets down there. He is the most successful, but he ends up wasting his time trying to save everyone. Classic Harry move. I mean, it's noble, but at the same time, I I guess we don't fault him too much because if you're Harry, there is nothing from your past experience in the wizarding world to think that these guys will be saved. Like they could very well die i would leave it based off what's happened to me in previous years of Hogwarts. well that he's got to figure that he the only person he can trust that's actually in the water is cedric and he knows that cedric is going to save cho but he doesn't know about ron or hermione guys i want to share a take with you guys if i'm harry and i'm going to save the people i can't remember does he get there before cedric it's like around he, the yeah he time. gets there he gets there first yeah, if I'm him, I'm taking a look at Hermione, Ron, and Cho. I'm grabbing Cho and coming to the surface. <laughs> right, right in Cedric's face. I mean, when I first read the book, I thought it was a challenge for Harry to decide who he liked more beside, be, between Hermione, Ron, and Cho. Also, it's kind of sad that Victor Crumb's person was Hermione, a person that like doesn't even care about him, really. Yeah, that, that's a little sad. I, I agree with that take on Crumb. I don't know about the... The Cho the saving take. Cho? If I'm Harry, I take Hermione because she's my lo- my most loyal friend. Yeah, up to this point, point that she's stuck with me the whole time. Ron's been iffy. I would have <laughs> yeah. saved Hermione for sure. You're just trying to score points with Cho. Be the, the, the savior, right? Help the damsel in distress. Oh, yeah. She would have fallen for him on the spot. She would have snapped on Cedric. Why weren't you there to, to rescue me first? All I know is I was in Harry's arms when I emerged from the water. <laughs> Sounds like a fan fiction uh, story that Dan's going to write. <laughs> Who stinks now? Who stinks now? Who stinks now? Cedric stinks. <laughs> yeah, Dan, check out check out uh, Phantology Discord for Dan's fan fiction about Harry and Cho. And while I'm on that note, if you, if you like Phantology, check us out on social media. Check out our Discord and you can tell us the mistakes that we're making, what you like about the channel. And we have a Patreon and we have merch. We've kind of got it all at this point. Phantology's, uh, Phantology's thriving, so we'd love to have you be a part of the community. But let's get back to the uh, the end of the second task. So the headmasters and uh, I think Crouch is probably part of it and Maxime, they all convene and they discuss what's going on because obviously they have not thought about what they might rule in these situations. Although you think you might want to put some kind of framework around the challenges. Anyway, Harry ends up getting second place. So not bad. Good cool. performance from Harry. Yeah. And so far, Fleur has really underperformed in the first couple of tasks. Overall, she just has a forgettable performance. It's it's Fleur. Fleur Delacour. What did I say? I can't remember, but... I think F- Fleur or Fleur are okay. It's She's French, right? So you yeah. probably be something actually different than both of those, but we're not going to try our French pronunciations on the fly. But yeah, I agree. Fleur is very disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, once again, she's just, she's just hot. That's like all she brings to the table. 
and I guess this point we've already established that you can't just quit. So you got to do all three, right? Yeah. Yeah, she's not going to quit. Her entire country would be ashamed of her. Yeah. When are we going to talk about the spectator quality of the tasks? Oh, that you can't see anything? Yeah. <laughs> I think they do a really good job pointing it in the movie. They're just standing there for like hours just yeah. waiting for someone to emerge out of the water. Okay, you already had this problem solved at the Quidditch World Cup with the Omnioculars. Why was there not something similar being distributed for this task? To see underwater? It, it was, yeah, it was perfect. It was already set up. This idea had been planted at the beginning of the book. They should have just been distributing these, throw out a few sentences about that, you know, adding a whole lot to the book, and it just seems much more rewarding for the rest of the, yeah, the people like, there. There should be a spell just like cast on the water so it's like transparent and to see everything. That would have been cool, although they're like pretty deep down. So yeah, definitely opportunity missed here from yeah. J.K. Rowling. As someone who is personally suffering from a lack of sports right now, I'm a pretty big sports fan. If I was a big Quidditch fan and I wasn't necessarily like, if I wasn't really into Harry or Cedric or any of the other competitors, and I didn't really care about the Triwizard Tournament, I would really be missing Quidditch because... I mean, those are how many matches are there a year that you get to go to? There's six matches a year between the different houses that you're missing out on. And that's replaced with this Triwizard Tournament. That's just honestly a terrible spectator sport. Hard to swallow. We can talk about how bad the third task is. They go into a maze and you can't see anything. And not to mention, there's no, there's no way to assure the safety of the competitors either. Contrary to what was advertised at the beginning of the tournament, you you weren't buying the safety of the red sparks and the the uh, the headmasters patrolling the outside of the maze. <laughs> no, because I'm pretty sure if you're under the imperious curse or if you get stunned or like killed or something, you're not going to be able to cast the red sparks. Yeah, but once again, Hogwarts is known for not being safe. Wizards do not care about being safe. It's pretty much a survival of the fittest. Very um, harsh community, despite the, uh, the 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 laughs that Fred and George try to bring to the world. Anyway, uh, after the second task is over, we kind of go through several different things that are going to give us information about the plot going forward, the, the final plot. And I have to give J.K. Rowling credit on this one because in the third book, she did a terrible job with the Sirius Black info dump, but she does much better here by breaking up the information Agreed. into several different types of, uh, you know, she she explains it in several different ways. So there's the whole Barty Crouch in the forest incident when we know that Barty Crouch Jr. is eventually going to go in and kill him. So so Crouch emerges. He gets out of the Imperius Curse. He's coming to see Dumbledore. Harry, Harry meets him. Moody goes to find him, we think, but obviously not. So that happens. And then we get more information via the Pensieve and the vision that Harry has of Wormtail. And then there's information from Sirius. So there's several different ways. And it's all kind of happening in the same chunk of the book, but it's done in enough different ways that it's it's really good for me. Yeah, and J.K. Rowling, she always does a really good job of pulling your attention in a lot of different ways, getting you distracted with semi-plot issues. And in this book, there's a lot of red herrings and a lot of people that you might suspect. Like, for example, you have Ludo Bagman, you have Karkaroff, you have Always Snape is you know, kind of shady. You don't know what he's up to. And you have all these people, you have the introduction of the Death Eaters. So you know that they have ties to Voldemort. And she does a really good job of 
um, every time she mixes up the the twist. So the whole time you're thinking one of these people has to be behind all of this in the back of your mind. You're thinking that, you know, someone put Harry's name into the goblet, but really you go back and forth between who you think it is. And that's yeah. something she does really well. Yeah, lots of villains in this book. You also have Rita Skeeter, who you get some hints here and there. Like there's a scene where Malfoy is talking to his hands, kind of like off in the distance. And we don't know what this is, but it's really Draco um, giving Rita some some info for a salacious article. Yeah, I, I like that, Dan. I think she does a really good job, good job of mixing it up. And eventually it's someone that you would not have expected because Moody seems like such a hero, such a cool guy the whole time but it's not really him. It's it's Crouch Jr. who you get exposed to yeah. for the first time in the Pensieve. Yeah, and it's a perfect twist because you're suspecting someone that would want to kill Harry in the task. So the last person that you would expect is the, the lone adult that seems to be helping him and giving him advice. Yeah, so it's a really good twist as, you're, as, as the action is unfolding. And I also like the different mediums of revealing some of this information because you have these visions that Harry's experiencing. The Pensieve is very cool. And the part at the end with the Death Eaters and the wands connecting and everything and, and the ghosts appearing, that is also cool. So she's really kind of like drawing upon some different ways that the magic works. And it's very uh, unique, each of them. And they all, they all add um, a little bit more flavor to the world. Yeah, my least favorite one was the Pensieve. I wasn't really buying that Dumbledore just happened. Well, honestly, he probably did it on purpose so that it could be a teaching moment for Harry. And he wasn't just outing the personal history of all these wizards that Harry comes into contact with knowingly, but Harry kind of stumbles upon this pensive in his office. And then he comes back and says, Oh, I, I thought I should have closed that or something like that. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure if you watch the Dumbledore's big plan videos that we've talked about in previous books, they discussed that one because that one's way obvious. Hey, I just for the record, I've refrained from mentioning anything about that. Uh huh. After being scrutinized about only talking about that, so I've <laughs> refrained. <laughs> yeah, we need some. We need some original takes on the podcast. Let's move forward into the plot. So, so we kind of know some of these details, but rather than bog down the conversation with what they are, let's move into the third task. So, a lot of time has passed, or months have passed. And then finally, we're ready for the third task. The Quidditch pitch has been off limits for a while, and they come out, and there's this huge maze that's there. I think Bagman brings them out, so Bagman reappears. And maybe this is a way, uh, kind of like you were saying, Dan, that she is kind of spreading the suspicion around, because now um, he's yeah. reentered into the story, and he's already a shady character. So then they go into the maze, and, and this the rules are pretty straightforward here. Get to the center. You win. Good luck on good luck on any obstacles. Grab the cup and you win. And they use the previous points that they earned in the last tasks in order to let them go in in staggered time intervals, which I thought was a little like really kind of diluted the effects of the previous tasks because they were in there for so long. Like, how much does a few minutes advantage really give you? Oh, really? I'm I'm going to push back on this. I actually thought it was one of the better sports rules that. JK Rowling has written. I guess so, but I think I'm thinking back to my Survivor experience, you know, the hit uh, reality show Survivor. Oh, yeah. Survivor. Yeah, I, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's a fun show. And on the show, a lot of times they do these long tasks similar to what we see here. 
There are some mazes sometimes. And in those cases, there's always like this puzzle at the end. And a lot of times there are like extended minutes and sometimes hours that expire before a winner is declared. And sometimes they give advantages to going first or sometimes someone's got a big head start and then it ends up being nothing because the final thing is so long that it doesn't even matter. So maybe I'm maybe what I'm saying is I'm more critical of the survivor rules and not the Harry Potter rules, but I, I equated them in my mind. I would have to have a more accurate reporting on exactly how long the maze took to have a, a firm opinion on it. But I, I liked it because it made you feel like they were on somewhat even ground, like even Fleur had a chance, I guess. Yeah, she had a chance for a second. I a think Crumb, chance. Imperio controlled uh, Crumb, took her out. Yeah, so what did they face? There there, there were some blast-ended scroots. I think there were some, were there some giant spiders at one point, I think? Yeah, there's the spiders. The Sphinx was probably the, the highlight for me. There was this weird uh, hazy stuff you had to get through. You just had to like run through it. Uh-huh. Oh, there was a bogger as well. I think that Harry... Oh, piece of Harry cake. is able to take out. Yeah. Piece of cake for Harry. So do you guys think in the moment you would have been able to calm your nerves enough and think back and solve the Sphinx riddle? Because I was impressed with Harry's ability to do so. Oh, yeah. I thought that was a big moment yeah. for Harry not not to be with Hermione. Yeah, previously he's shown zero acumen and able to solve in being able to solve problems like this. If you think back to the Sorcerer's Stone, literally every piece of intelligent work was done by Hermione, and so maybe Harry's picked up some tricks. Maybe he saw like Hermione's stance while she was thinking or something, and put that to work. But uh, yeah, he he got the spider riddle correct. Yeah, and he also put together the Mer people riddle from the egg. Well, it wasn't technically a riddle, I don't know, but. He had to figure out what was actually like who was singing yeah. and, and where, where it would take him. He did better than Cedric in that one. Yeah. When I think about it, apparently all three of the champions, well, I'm going to say all four because I don't believe Harry to be all that intelligent. These are four of the lower intelligent options that could have been chosen for the tournament. Mm, maybe Cedric is somewhat smart. You never really Cedric's, know. Cedric's, Cedric's a pretty boy. He's in Hufflepuff. I think maybe a Ravenclaw would have done better. I think that Cedric proves his competence and much more throughout the tournament, as does Crumb for me. Fleur is the questionable. I mean, Crumb spends most of his time in the library. I think he's really misunderstood and a lot deeper than you might think. Like, he's not your typical jock. And I think one of the things that attracts him to Hermione is her intelligence as well. I think Crumb, he spends his time in the library so he can be with Hermione. No, but he's in the library long before he asks Hermione. You think he was just scoping her for months? Yeah, that would be that would be creepy. <laughs> We're gonna re- revise our Yule Ball date <laughs> if that's the case. I think Crumb was in the library beforehand as well, trying to study up, getting ready for his NEWTs. Yeah, we'll have if to double t- check. We'll have to double check to see if there were any Crumb library appearances pre teeth shrinkage. That would be the true sign of if he's a. Uh, if he's just about her looks or if he's about the intelligence too. Okay, so any more takes on the maze or let's get to the climax? Yeah, let's just get to the climax. Yes, yeah, so we grab the cup. Harry once again makes the makes a noble decision, goes back and saves Cedric. They grab it together. It's going to be a Hogwarts victory anyway. And they immediately arrive in this creepy graveyard. Things have gone wrong. And Cedric is killed offhandedly right away. Yeah, yeah Voldemort tells Wormtail to kill the spare. 
and yeah, yikes. That's like that's the moment when it transitions from being children's books to an adult series. Yeah. That's when you know it's real. And Cedric dies. Yes, you see some of the more complex magic happening as well. This spell to bring back Voldemort required a lot of preparation, required some very specific, hard to obtain pieces of ingredient. Although it seems like he could have come back a long time ago because Harry's not his only enemy, but he wanted to do this in order to get immunity from whatever happened before. Because I don't think Voldemort really understands why he was vanquished in the first place. So that makes some sense. And ultimately his years of planning work out and he takes his new body and becomes the Dark Lord once again. Yeah, I I choose to believe that the different ingredients and whatnot took a long time to collect because otherwise there's a little bit of a plot hole that why did Barty Crouch slash Moody, why did he choose the moment of the task to be the time when he got, when he gave him the port key? Seems like there were a lot of opportunities earlier or maybe he just had a flair for the, for the dramatic. Yeah. Why could he not have made anything a port key and said, Hey, Harry, grab this thing. So yeah, and I, we go. I choose to think that it was a very, very complicated potion slash spell. Maybe he just needed a little bit more time to get more strength. Yeah, that too. Yeah. And then when Voldemort comes back, here's a question. Why does he come back in tall, ugly snake form? I guess I'm kind of going off the movie, but that's the depiction I have in my head. Why doesn't he come back as like a good looking, normal like guy. A Tom Riddle. Yeah, yeah, we know Tom Riddle as a te- as a teenager was a bit of a, a bit of a heartthrob because he's not Tom Riddle anymore. He's Lord Voldemort. So he needs that appearance, that that like physical presence, in order to really cement his identity. I guess so. I mean, it's just like Darth Vader in Star Wars. Well, yeah, but Darth Vader, I think, had given the choice, would have came back as Anakin, not as pieced together Darth Vader. I don't know. Maybe he just wanted it to make it easier for kids and adults as well to dress up for him as Halloween and be recognizable, have more of a look. Gave rise to a lot of fun YouTube videos with uh, with comically portrayed Voldemort costumes, such as the Harry Potter rap video that made all the rounds back in like 2008. Yeah, somewhere around there. Oh, yeah. And I just remember the Harry Potter puppets. The Puppet Pals? The Puppet Pals, yeah. Yeah. Those are classics. So Voldemort's back, and then the the Dark Mark is once again cast. Again, another good job of, of harkening back to the beginning of the book. I like when Rowling does this, and it's kind of her formula to set up some things in the opening action where it doesn't seem as serious, and then throw it back on you towards the end when it makes sense. So that's what's happening here with the Dark Mark. And kind of same thing with the with the Death Eaters. And when Harry when Harry uses the Accio spell too, that was set yeah. up well earlier in the book. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a big oversight. The first thing that Voldemort should have done was deactivated the port key, so Harry couldn't get away. But that would have been showing weakness to his followers that he couldn't beat Harry before they arrived. Maybe, or also, it was this a different type of port key because previous port keys went off on a certain time and you had to be grabbing it. And this one just activated as soon as Harry touched it again. Maybe Harry would, or Voldemort was waiting after he killed Harry to go back through the Porky and that he was going to oh, arrive. That's, that's a theory. Yeah, he was going to show up and the war was going to start right away. 
Yeah. I like that. Oh, no, no, no. That's that's not the theory. The theory is he was going to send Harry's body back through the port key, and he was going to make it seem like Harry had just died in the maze. Oh, okay. So that no one would have known, and he wanted to gather more yeah. power. Yeah, that's right, because he still needed to gather his power. He needed to get his followers. He needed to get the giants on his side and the Dementors and everything that happened. I, I, I don't know about that theory, because he would have had to send back Harry and Cedric. Cedric's body back. Well, he wasn't expecting the spare. Yeah, and look at the wizarding. People are able to dismiss a dark mark conjuring by saying a house elf did it. I think they would be able to say, "Oh, yeah, he just died. He died in the they don't, maze." They don't, they don't seem to investigate too too much into these crimes. Yeah. So Voldemort, upon coming back, proceeds to do what every good villain does and monologue. He brags to Harry about how he got him there. He brags about how great his plan was. He thanks Wormtail for his service. He impresses his loyal servants. Well, not his loyal servants, really. The servants that out of fear returned to him. And then after Voldemort is done bragging and telling us how great he is, they finally have this little showdown. And Harry is able to expel Yarmus once again, his way into survival. And it it kicks off this uh, a priori incantatum thing, which means that basically the Latin means that whatever you cast before now it's going to happen again and since the beam went towards Voldemort's side more because of plot reasons Voldemort's ghosts the the most recent people he killed come out they give Harry some strength and he is able to get Cedric back and Accio the cup back and then so we survive but it's looking way bad as Voldemort is returned again dun 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 I, I really like this part just because, I mean, it, it goes on later to explain why they had the sister wands and explains a little bit later in the series. But I really liked how they depicted it, even though Harry used Expelliarmus against Avacadabra. So you were OK with the with the Voldemort monologuing. I threw some low key shade at him there. If oh, you couldn't pick up on that. I actually liked the monologue. I thought he earned the monologue with the kill the spare. Like he proved that that he was about this life when he did the whole kill the spare act. And then I didn't mind the monologue at that point. Yeah, I I, I, I liked the monologue. It wasn't too long. Because there were a okay. lot of there were a lot of loose ends that only he could tie together, such as like the Bertha Jorkins, who was a character that was brought up a lot that was a ministry worker that had been killed and you never really knew what was going on with that and then tying it back into the opening scene with frank bryce as well yeah good good tiebacks i guess that's fine it's it's kind of a trope which is maybe what i was kind of say, kind of saying more than oh, anything for sure. that yeah. the villain's gonna come in and tell us how great they are right away but with Voldemort, i felt like we didn't need to be told because we knew right away from four books of hearing about Voldemort, we knew how sinister he was he didn't have to tell us himself yeah, but up to that point, I mean, it was just only word of mouth. And so, I mean, he had it. I mean, I feel like Voldemort had to prove himself that he was back. So what's the story with Harry and his wand? Why did that wand select him? Is it because he was a Horcrux? Is that confirmed? No, it uh, hasn't been confirmed. Well, that makes sense. He's got part of Voldemort's soul inside of him, so the Phoenix Core wand would gravitate towards him. I don't know if that's confirmed or not. I don't really follow all of the post-confirmed, not-confirmed theories about the books. I kind of tend to just like uh, my understanding based off the text. I'm not real into the Pottermore and all that stuff afterwards. Um, fight me on Discord if, if you are. 
but um, that makes sense. That's the theory I can get behind. Yeah, because it does seem really lucky that he has the sister wand. Well, that I think it also goes off the fact that Harry's the chosen one and that he's the one spoken the prophecy. So he's got to be the one fight Voldemort, and that's why he has his wand. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff ties together. So after Harry escapes back, we get our final reveal that Dan really liked. Apparently, biggest reveal of the book, which is that Moody, who has always been so helpful and and kind and looking out for Harry and this father figure. Yeah, he's actually Barty Crouch Jr. And he's been trying to kill Harry and bring Voldemort back to life the entire time. He has done a fantastic job, except for at the very end when he monologues for too long and is done in by Dumbledore and co i think mcgonagall and snape show up along with dumbledore yeah one thing i agree with one thing i disagree with i agree that i didn't like this monologue as much the second thing i did not like this reveal i said it was the biggest twist as in it was the most surprising but that doesn't mean that i liked the twist when i read it it wasn't really satisfying for me i thought that barty crouch jr was a super lame villain compared to all of the other ones that we've had up to this point even like even Quirrell in the first book was a little bit unsatisfying, but Barty Crouch Jr. We just didn't know anything about him at all. The only exposure we'd had to him was through word of mouth and through Harry's experience with the Pensieve. And we didn't even know at this point if he was actually evil or good, which I guess doesn't matter. We just know that his dad didn't like him. So there had been a ton of buildup to this point, And I think I would have been more satisfied if there would have been a clever way to weave Karkaroff or Bagman or somebody else on the faculty into it a little bit more. Right. Yeah. I, I see, I see what you, I, I see what you're saying that in previous books, there have been villains that are on camera and that therefore it is satisfying when they come out. Although I guess Tom Riddle in the second book was, uh, was maybe also a similar, like not till the end. Did you really understand what was going on there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I guess that's what made the third book so good is that you were already really familiar with all of the key contributors to the final scenes. Whereas in this one, you all of a sudden have this new character thrust in. Actually, every book, they always bring a new... Like, Peter Pettigrew was pretty much a new character in the third book. Quirrell was... I mean, first book was new to everyone, so... Yeah, you're right. I just didn't like it, though. (laughs) I mean, I... I I, I I liked it, but I I didn't love it. Yeah, so in our other episodes, we do these things called Worst of the Best, where we talk about one of our top moments and something wrong with it. So it sounds like that's kind of yours. But in our Harry Potter serial episodes, we do top three and bottom three. So that's kind of a wrap for the book. I mean, there were a few details to round up, like Rita Skeeter being an Animagus and Hermione getting the upper hand on her finally, which is real satisfying. And then one of my favorite moments is when Harry gives Fred and George all the galleons, the prize money, so they can start the joke shop. That's nice. Oh, really quick. I thought that the way that the book ended was really masterful on the reread because you really see Harry's character maturing. You see that he has gone through something, seeing Cedric be murdered in cold blood and seeing Voldemort and seeing all the Death Eaters, that he realizes how much the stakes have been raised. And it's going to take, he's not going to be able to just bounce back from this and be happy-go-lucky Harry immediately. Like, yeah. It takes him a long time to recover in the hospital wing and Dumbledore tells everyone like he needs a space. And then Dumbledore gives that really solemn speech at the end when he tells everyone that Voldemort is coming back. Uh Yeah. 
yeah, you just know that it's not going to be all about school anymore. Like it's going to be way bigger than that. And that rolls right into Harry being incredibly moody and obnoxious in the fifth book. Yeah, it justifies it a little bit. So that's a wrap for the book. Real quick in our last minutes here, we're going to go over our top and bottom three. So you're probably familiar with the spiel at this point. If you're not, check out our previous episodes. But we're going to talk about which three characters did the best and did the worst. So not our favorites necessarily, but like who performed the best, who did the best for themselves and what they were trying to do. So whose performance stood out the, the most and... I think we're going to have Nathan start us off. Yeah, Wait, Nathan. Top, top three or bottom three? Top three. Top three? First is first has got to be Barty Crouch Jr. I really liked him as a character. Just how he outsmarted everyone and convinced everyone that he was Mad-Eye Moody. Even Dumbledore. I mean, he's got to be his closest friend. Number two is is Voldemort. Just the fact that he was able to come back. Number three would probably be Harry, just being underaged and being able to take on all three tasks and winning the tournament. Yeah, Harry went through an incredible amount of stress in this book. I think this is probably his strongest showing of all the books. That's my opinion. Okay, Dan, let's hear your top three. Yeah, I'm not going to be too unique on mine. I've been juggling around a few. Harry's number one. I just think that last scene in the graveyard really cements it for me, how quickly he was able to grab the or follow the advice of all the spirits that were appearing around him and grab the cup and return. That was a pretty miraculous escape. And despite his procrastination through all the book and his crappy performance at the Yule Ball, I think it was a really standout performance. Number two, Barty Crouch Jr. for all the reasons Nathan named. Then number three, I have it between three things. I'm going to say my number three that I'm leaning towards and then give a couple honorable mentions. My number three is Cedric. And I can't remember why I wrote down Cedric now. There was something in our conversation that led me to really like, oh, Cedric for nabbing Cho, right? <laughs> of, the, of the entire that has to be recognized. He clearly had Cho smitten. So we know that there's a lot more there. And Stephen, I, I disagree with your overly simplistic view of Cedric that he's just another pretty boy Hufflepuff. Oh, Dan, I, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for the the fan fiction of Harry and Cho from, from you. Some other honorable mentions I have were the house of the Slytherin house for putting together the Potter stinks badges movement, which I thought was really comical. And then uh-huh. I thought it could have been Dumbledore for his performance at the end of the book, which I thought was the best that he's done so far, but he let all of the dangerous stuff happen right underneath his, uh, his nose yet again, promised the safety of all the participants in the Triwizard Tournament, one of them dies. Probably more of them should have. So can't put them in the top three. So mine, this is a long book. There's a lot of characters, a lot's happening. I think I'm going to have to agree with you guys. I think Harry and Barty Crouch Jr. were the two top ones, but I'm going to switch up my top three a little bit to highlight some others. So I'm going to say number one is Hermione. Once again, great performance. She nabs Victor Crumb, who's, you know. Yeah. Victor if Crumb. Cho is the is the it girl that Cedric is after, Victor Crumb, I mean, this is a great move financially for her in the long term if she had been able to follow <laughs> through on it. And he's obviously a, a Triwizard competitor. So Hermione making, uh, making some moves and growing up a bit. She also assists Harry with all the different tasks and, and has good ideas throughout, as we expect from Hermione. Although 
dang, maybe I need to rethink this a little bit because I just remember uh, SPEW again and my dismissal of it. So, oh, yeah, spew. Okay, Hermione's down to three now, and my number two <laughs> stays the same. My my number two is you already said Crouch and Harry. No, you no, no, change were, it. I was like, I was like nodding to those ones. Oh, okay. And so my my number two is Rita Skeeter because even though she slips up at the end and gets caught as an animagus, which was one of the pros in Hermione's favor, she really grows her following, grows her career a lot by being selected by the Daily Prophet to cover the Triwizard Tournament by writing all these articles that got a lot of people reading them and believing them, even people like Mrs. Weasley, who obviously should have known better. So she did really well for herself, a very dislikable character overall, but she probably advanced her career a lot and she was able to, you know, probably keep going even after Hermione threatened her. And then my number one, ah, Hermione was going to be the number one, but I forgot about uh, the whole house elf debacle. I'll just say the combination of Harry and Barty Crouch Jr., both very strong performances, got uh, what they were going for, for the most part. So now let's go uh, Let's go bottom three. So background to Nathan. Okay, bottom three. I just have three people that I hated throughout this book. I just think Dumbledore, Ron, Ron, yeah. You, you knew it was coming. Yeah, we knew Ron was in there. <laughs> Dumb, Dumbledore, Ron, and Barty Crouch. I feel like those three, Barty Crouch Sr., I feel like those three people are just absolutely poor performances in this book. I felt like Dumbledore should have helped out Harry a lot more throughout the tournament. And then Ron just, just his performance, getting jealous of Harry for no reason whatsoever. And I don't know, maybe it's just the film a little bit, the movie. Ron's hair in the movie is just absolutely horrible. Oh yeah, it's a rough, it's a rough hair movie for everyone. Fred and George also very rough hair. Yeah. And then Barty Crouch. I feel like Barty Crouch should have been able to out his own son maybe a little bit sooner or find out that his son is actually alive. I don't know. Something like that. Plus the whole rules in the tournament is just a little skeptical. Yeah, those are three solid, three adult characters who let us down Crouch, Dumbledore, and... Ron. Ron's not an adult, though. Oh. Yeah, Ron's not an adult, obviously, but that's just a given from Nathan. Okay, Dan, what is your bottom three? Yeah, I'm jealous that I didn't think of the Barty Crouch one. That one was really good because he obviously failed because he's all about maintaining the order and the classiness and being a traditional wizard, but he has all of these scandals and they like blow up in his face. So my bottom three, Ron is number one because he ruined the Yule Ball for me. Number two <laughs> is Fleur because I expect more out of a Triwizard Tournament participant, and she didn't show me anything that goes above and beyond normal wizarding practices, which is kind of surprising because J.K. Rowling, I thought, would have made a female character more strong than her. And number three, I'm going to go with Percy, because Percy is... um, Well, obviously, there's all this stuff going on with his boss, Barty Crouch. He doesn't see any of it. He could have clued people in earlier. And also there's a scene at the Yole Ball, which he's a chaperone at somehow. He just <laughs> is back at Hogwarts <laughs> chaperoning the Yole Ball. And he goes up to Harry, who Harry obviously has a ton of stuff on his mind. And he's like, hey, Harry, did you hear about 
I got a new promotion. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, no, yeah. cares, dude. Like, read the room a little bit, Percy. Yeah, he's like the guy who you can only talk to if it's something he's interested in. Oh, yeah, totally. And there's a, a at the beginning when they're all in the burrow, the whole family is having a good time getting together and Bill and Charlie are home. Everyone's joking around. And then Percy comes out and like tells everyone they're being too loud because he's doing work stuff. Like Percy seems like he'd be the worst roommate out of any of the Harry Potter characters besides the ones that would like kill you. Percy's probably neat, so he's probably not leaving a mess. But yeah, he would be he'd be a tough guy to deal with for sure. I bet you he'd have like Penelope over all the time in the living room and they just assume that space. They just have like squatters rights and then you never feel comfortable going in your own living room because Percy's there with Penelope. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. They're for sure. They're for sure making out in the living room all the time. I'm unfazed by anyone being there. I had a roommate my freshman year in college. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this, but same situation. That's too bad. <laughs> yeah, so my bottom three. I actually have some uh, unique ones. I don't have to fake it this time. So I'm going to say number three is Ludo Bagman because of his inability to get his financial situation straightened out. Unlike Alexander Hamilton, shout out Disney+. Plus. Handle our financial situation. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's the latest thing. Back again from 2016. And then my uh, my number two, I'm going to say... Just wait for it for a minute. Another Hamilton thing. Who was my number two? Um, my number two is going to be Karkaroff slash Maxime. Both of these headmaster, I mean, headmaster and headmistress really didn't make me love them at all. They didn't seem to accomplish much. Their schools were unsuccessful. Both lost to Hogwarts and one of the Hogwarts competitors was 14. So what have they been really uh, teaching these guys? because that's an embarrassing performance. And then my number one worst performance from the book, I think I'm going to go back to just the just the Bulgaria Quidditch team as a whole. I liked that conversation we were having. It made me really realize how poor their strategy was, why they couldn't have come up with a strategy that was all around preventing points, like they should have gone with an all-beater team or something and crumb to prevent points getting on the board, to give crumb enough time, or they should have added in Crumb as a chaser. Like they could have figured out a way to not play straight up, like play to your strategy, know your personnel a little bit. So embarrassing that they just played it straight up and got steamrolled and were unable to use their their best player. So that is my bottom three. Yeah, and they wasted their huge advantage of having the Vila. I mean, they they used the Vila a little bit, but they were also, you know, had to combat against the Leprechauns. Both sides yeah. were able to... Uh, to bring to out some goods. Mascot power. Uh-huh. Just part of the game. Everything yeah. all's all's fair in love and war and wizarding competitions. It is all good. Okay, thanks for listening to uh to our review of Harry Potter 4, The Goblet of Fire. It's been fun with Dan and Nathan. For all you muggles out there that tune into podcasts, wizards, you can probably stop listening now because I know you don't know how to use technology. But muggles, look us up at Phantology Books on social media at www.phantologybooks.com. Check out our, our Discord to chat with us. Check out our Patreon if you want content such as the Phantology people going in and explaining the mistakes that we made while we're recording and giving you our raw reactions to books that we finish. Check that out. And there's also merch. So if you want to wear a shirt or you want to wear a face mask or you just want a cool mug and you want it Phantology branded, we can do that for you. 
So uh, check out our socials for that information. So Nathan, Dan, it's been fun. Guys, we'll yeah. see you guys ready for Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. can't wait. We should have some kind of password for the next um, for the next podcast to make sure none of us are under the polyjuice potion we're our actual selves. So let's keep that in mind for next time. Yeah, we, we obviously can't say it out loud, but we will come up with the password. That's a little bit better than lemon drop. Mm-hmm. All right, see you guys later. Bye. See you.